listening to the Higher Ed Podcast. We uncover the future of higher education, current trends, insights from the sector's brightest, and actionable advice for leaders and executives. Creating impactful universities, well-branded colleges, and best-in-class student experiences. Join us as we redefine the sector one episode at a time. What do you do? do? Uh, I I like to call myself a renaissance woman instead of calling myself a jack of all trades. (laughs) Um, I have a lot of interests and um, various, uh, a wide array of skill sets. And so I have been fortunate enough to kind of operationalize a lot of those things and um, create some multiple streams of income. And so um, I am an academic. First and foremost, uh, I'm I'm a dean of arts and sciences at um, Atlanta Technical College in Atlanta, Georgia. That's one of my um, interests. I am. That's the one uh, I know about. (laughs) That's the part you know about. Yeah, that's the one I know about. (laughs) Okay. And I'm also an executive coach, um, executive and organization coach. Um, I have my own consulting firm, McCoy Wilson Consulting LLC. And so that is the the endeavor that I launched in 2020. But it was a long time coming. Um, I started um, imagining this while in my doctorate. I uh, am a doctor of education uh, from the University of Georgia in learning leadership and organization development. So that that doctorate in and of itself speaks to all of my skill sets. Nice. Um, I'm also a, a professor of of writing um literature and uh culturally responsive teaching and um i consult for um firms that need education consulting and writing um and i'm a published writer i have a few uh articles out there that are making some traction and my research interests are uh, adult education uh, race gender culturally relevant teaching and cultural responsivity. Um, so that's a little bit. You know, I also have some short stories published from when I was nice, writing nice. fiction. Yes. So I'm all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely a Jane of all trades or a Renaissance woman. So I like that. And this has been kind of a great, great opening. I like to really, you know, kind of continue that. Um, I think, you know, you talked about, you know, some of the writing in regard to uh seems like equity higher ed race relations like what what made you i guess maybe start to take that on so much um it, it i think that what is in you has to come out sure or it will kill you <laughs> i think i took that from uh julia uh alvarez uh, uh a woman of color literary fiction writer um but anyway um as a writer my first talent, my first love was always writing. And so I went to college eons ago as an English major with a journalism um, concentration. And that morphed into a literature concentration. So I studied um, in undergrad and in graduate school on my master's graduate school. I studied the 19th century and 19th century Americanists and so, as as you know, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you, the 19th century in America was slavery. Right, right. Was the antebellum period. And so I spent uh, about three years 
reading every slave narrative that I could get my hand on because that was my focus. Um, and so my emphasis, uh, my thesis, my master's thesis emphasis was trauma, um, trauma, uh, transgenerational trauma that slavery has left us. And so I spent, you know, the better part, like I said, of a decade working on um, things that focused in that area. Um, and, and then, so that informed my practice, that informed where I have chosen to, to serve. Um, I became, right after grad school, I joined Teach for America and uh, did that kind of uh, achievement gap uh, movement which is kind of pejorative these days. We may get to that. But, um, you know, I, I was able to enter this world of education and educational inequity. And it was maddening. It was um, extremely sad. It was traumatizing. It all, it, it confirmed what I say, and I say it constantly, and today it's even more relevant than it used to be, that all roads for Africans in America lead back to slavery. All mm -hmm. roads for contemporary white Americans lead back to slavery. The country began as a slave holding nation. And, it, and, and, and so slavery leaves no hands clean and it did not leave the country. Systemic and systematic racism are predicated on the transatlantic slave trade and this country's um, infancy as a slaveholding nation. And so all of that I have brought with me along the way and collected other areas of expertise. And so as an academic dean in arts and sciences, I chose a doctorate in the College of Education um, because I'm a leader as well, a leader of change. And, and that's what I wanted to do. Teach for America, um, you know, un uh, rang, uh, popped me out of a box and radicalized me in a different kind of way. And so I, I thought my purpose needs to be changing education for the better. So that's why I entered into uh, the doctor of education. And boy, was that one of the best decisions I've ever made. So, um, you know, you, you can't put me back in the box now. Gotcha. That's also a lot to unpack there. But I'm, I'm really curious and I know this is probably a long answer, and that's fine. But I think you spoke on transgenerational trauma, right? Yeah. And I'm curious to, you know, the links of that to education, higher ed, and then ultimately equity. I'm glad that you made those connections. <laughs> um, uh, because my my theory, and, and it's been cited quite a lot since 2008, is that uh, contemporary Africans in America, Black folks in America, um, carry trauma, the trauma of slavery in their DNA, in, in their psyches, in their consciousness, in their bodies, um, and in the way that they show up in the world. And so um, America, that, that's America's dark past, that is its dark present. And so all of that trauma of slavery and all of the brutal brutality and oppression that that slavery wrought never left the country. And so when people are talking about uh, police brutality and defunding the police 
and this this agency and its its racism and that agency and its right. racism. It's not that you're talking about a symptom of a bigger problem. The country was founded on the basis of of white supremacy and the brutality of of chattel slavery. It never went away. Once the Civil War was 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 uh, complete and we went into post Reconstruction, immediately the country adopted Jim Crowism for the next hundred years. And, and so and, and, and that leads us into contemporary society. And so what does all that have to do with equity in education? Education, the church, police and the government are just ideological state apparatuses of the nation state. And so all of those organizations and all of those facets of society are a microcosm of the larger society. And if the larger society still holds white supremacy and Jim Crow laws and all of the racial disparities in its the fabric of its making, then of course those kinds of ideals and ideology are going to seep into the police, education, the church, and the government, and the healthcare system. And so inequity in education is inevitable if inequity in, in the whole society is a reality. And so that is one of the reasons why I, the leader of change part, changing those systems, dismantling um, racist, white supremacist systems and rebuilding this thing, this American project in a new way. So I've got um, a couple of friends, even one of my closest friends, um, he works at a charter school, uh, another friend that works at another high school. And, you know, equity has been something that I feel like I kind of started hearing from them a few years ago and it's picked up, picked up, picked up. And then, you know, once George Floyd was kind of that, you know, spark that, you know, now, you know, um, it's, it's everywhere, right? How do you do it? How do you fix it? How do you measure, right? Whether it's not, it's being fixed. And I think the toughest question, um, you know, cause I'm, a, I'm a little bit more of a moderate, right? So th- this is kind of the toughest question based on what you're saying. I could draw the conclusion that you can't fix it. It's inherent. It's a subconscious conscience, um, level of it. Can people of color get equity in institutions if it's not an HBCU or, you know, if, if they're not being teach, taught by people that look like them? That is, is that a fair the- question? Yes, it's okay. quite fair. It's a um, the big question is what it is. And um, a lot of defeatists will say you can't fix it. So just deal with it or leave the country. That's all. You, those are the only two choices that you have. I am not a defeatist. I believe that you can change anything if you have a strategy and you have buy in. And so this, it, and it's going to take a generation. It took a generation. No, it took several generations after slavery ended in 1865 to get to where we are now, which is going back around in circles. And so it's going to take at least a generation or two to undo the damage that has been done. And it has to be done through education, not through these piecemeal measures like defunding the police or, or, or transforming the police into public safety rather than policing. And I think that is necessary, but that's just a symptom to the bigger problem. Where do we learn how to be who we are? Aside from our families, 
And okay, and we'll go deeper than that. Where do our families learn to be who they are? Through education. Everybody has to start in kindergarten. That's what needs to change. The way that we are teaching or not teaching children. And then, of course, that moves past K-12 and into post-secondary education. That is why the white supremacists are right now fighting so hard against something that they're calling critical race theory, and it's not even critical race theory. Critical race theory is a subset of, of, of racial ideology that's taught in, in uh, universities, in law schools. That is not what's happening in K-12 schools, and I think they know it. The perpetrators of these kinds of you know, uh, conspiracy theories and, and hysteria, all that's happening in K-12 schools is that Teachers have to teach the truth, you know, what slavery was. It it, it was a big deal for this country. This country was a slaveholding nation before it was a nation. Before it won its independence from Great Britain, it was already enslaving. And so it is it is woven into the fabric of what it means to be American. And so if we can tell the truth about that. I'm writing a paper about this right now, so it's on the tip of my brain. If we can tell the truth about that, then we can move into reconciliation, which we never had, never even thought about when slavery ended. And that will happen through education or re-education of a new generation of Americans. So uh, I I believe you also feel or see that this is, uh, you know, inequity is, is very prevalent in two-year colleges. Yes. Uh, could you could you speak to that a bit? And there's a reason for that. I can't remember the, the scholar who actually has a book that he is marketing right now on this very issue. Gosh, his name escapes me. But, um, you know, if you think about, if you go through the history of post-secondary education in the U.S., Um, You know, Black people weren't allowed to read and write, first of all. And then, of course, weren't allowed an education once that failed, you know, that kind of oppression failed. And so that's that was the birth of the historically Black college and university to offer a space um, where Black people could educate Black people. Well, once Brown versus Board of Education um, became law and the school started integrating and therefore the entire country started integrating, then students of color and black students, indigenous students could apply to public state funded universities all over the country and go to school. So of course, this became a new problem for people who are not in support of equity, who are uh, still attempting to oppress black and brown people. And so then tuition rates started going up, um, you know, affirmative action had to be created to make sure that students of color and black students were actually not being discriminated at the admission, discriminated against at the admissions level. And so all of these, and, and in our generation, I'm sure you recall all of these efforts to ensure that equity was going to happen for black and brown students at universities. So um, we're still fighting that fight. It's still a problem. And so what happens is students of color, black students are relegated to two year colleges. First of all, the tuitions are very low. Second of all, a lot of those colleges are what we call access institutions. They do not have competitive admissions admissions. So as long as you fill out your application properly and submit all your documents, you are accepted. And so then that in and of itself is an equity issue. You you must you are confined to a two year community college or a two-year technical college to start your education. 
Then there's all there are all types of national disparities in funding for two-year colleges. Basically, they get very little funding. Some states, the one in which I live included, is, is a performance-based funding model, which means that if you can increase your graduation rates and your retention rates and your um, enrollment rates, then the more you do that, the more funding you will get. Well, we know that there's a very transient population in two-year colleges. And so therefore, it's kind of um, sabotaging to use a performance-based model for colleges who run on basically students who are transient, who come for a while, take a few classes and leave, or students who have other racial disparities and social um, underrepresented issues who have trouble staying in college for finances, for just living while Black and poor. So it's a, a vicious cycle of inequity. And it's it's systematic. You know, it is not just systemic. It is systematic. Systematic means it's done on purpose. It's intentional. There's no accident that these things are happening. So I think earlier, you know, you spoke of, you know, there's a group that says, okay, you know, let's fix it. Um, There's a group that says it's a waste of time, you know, I guess leave the country. Um, I I, I think there's another option. I think, you know, the, 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 the HBCU approach to fixing it to me would be maybe option B um, or C in in regards to those, right? Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to, you know, let's say 25, 50 years, right? The the plan that you and I'm just, you know, because I'm not going to put all of this on your shoulders, right? You know, you and, you know, maybe a, you know, committee of 10, 15 people build a team across the country and, I think 25 years is a generation. So we'll say 25, 50, maybe even 75 years down the road, this is fixed. What does it look like? It looks like what America says it is anyway. You know, all the propaganda, you know, leader of the free world, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all, regardless of race, national origin, gender, and religion. That's what it looks like. The stuff that we talk about, we're actually going to be about. That's what I'm holding out hope. You know, I'm I'm leaning on trust and abundance that 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 this can happen. I mean, because, you know, black people talk a lot of talk about leaving the country. But for the most part, you know, we don't want to leave our generational home like we built this country and our ancestors and our ancestors and our ancestors ancestors built this country. And so we don't want to just cash out and, you know, move to. Uh, another country and give up on it. So if you're not going to give up on it, you've got to do something to make it about the American dream, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So uh, it's very simple. Change it or or shut up about what's wrong with it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I I definitely agree with you. I think especially on that last part, I've, um, I've even had conversations with some of of my closest friends and I, I said, you know, there's people that, you know, they cry, you know, when they reach this country, right? There's mothers that put their child in a boat, you know, and just hope that they can make it here, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, many of us, you know, that are the descendants of, you know, slaves, right? That means that somewhere, you know, in your line, you know, somebody potentially had the choice, you know, to die, right? Or to endure it. 
And, you know, I don't think that they, you know, went through that for, you know, us to decide to leave, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think I agree with you 100 percent on that one. What inning do you think we're in, you know, into, you know, kind of starting this change? When the first, when the third? Um, I know I we're nowhere know. near the eighth. I don't know. This is a it had been a vicious cycle. You know, it, it, slavery ended. Uh, it didn't end that long ago. What are we, 200 and something years? Hold on. <laughs> I have done this math before. I'm going to do it again. It's more like 170, I believe. Yeah. Ish. 160. It's 156 years. Mm-hmm. That's that's a problem that we all think that it ended 200 years ago or 400 years ago. Right. No, it only ended 156 years ago. So really, in the big timeline of human history, that's a little dot, right? right? So we could say, and the country itself is not much older than that. Sure, The country itself is just over a hundred years older than right. that. You know, so we are living in a, a young country and, and what the rest of the world called an experiment. So we could say, you know, that we're somewhere in the middle, especially since we messed up those 156 years since slavery ended. And I say we as in the royal we. Black people didn't have a whole lot to do with messing it up. (laughs) It was uh, systematic, quite intentional, uh, that, that, that moment right after the Civil War ended when we were doing something called reparation, uh, something called uh, reconstruction instead of truth, reconciliation and reparations. Right. And of course, reconstruction was sabotaged and that only lasted a couple of years. And then we went back to just another form of enslavement in in Jim Crowism. So I think I think we're in the middle. I'm glad you asked me that question because I hadn't really thought of it in timelines because it gets depressing when you <laughs> when you start thinking about, you know, your lifetime and how long you've been doing this. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I'm an optimist, right? What, you know, they say the next 12, 24 months, and, you know, and even now, what are you optimistic about in regard to higher ed? You know, are, are there some things that, you know, are, are, are happening that are, you know, kind of moving in the right direction? Um, I am optimistic about the way that higher ed has responded to 2020. Like you said at the beginning, um, the the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery um, just ignited a, the the world. Really, the, the the movement for Black Lives became a global endeavor. Um, I'm actually writing a paper about that and presenting at a conference about that and and all those promises. And they were and a lot of those promises were coming from higher education about how they were in solidarity with that movement and what they were not just, you know, gestures of support and, and, and equity statements and diversity, equity, inclusion statements, but actions of support, tangible actions. I am optimistic that we are going to hold those institutions accountable for what they said they were going to do. And now it's time to put up or shut up. And we're not just talking about gestures and taking down some statues and renaming some buildings. We're talking about putting Black people in the center, putting Black people on boards, changing hiring practices so that uh, Black and brown people are reflected in faculty and staff and in governing boards. 
And so, you know, if we're at the table, we we now have the opportunity to say, hey, wait a minute. Now that right that right there, that's racist. That right there, that's sexually insensitive. Sure. Or all those things right, right. that don't get done right now. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I can't think of a better place to end it than right there. Um, for sure. That's a poignant statement. Um, any final kind of thoughts for the audience? Um, yes. Stop thinking small. Stop thinking in little segments of society. The police are just doing what the country tells them to do. Mm. You know, all of our focus, like I'm I'm constantly hearing about it still, about defunding the police and these things. That's just a piece. Start thinking larger. Start thinking systemic. Start thinking, where did it all begin? You know, and 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 get some education. Absolutely. You know, in order for you to start thinking that way, I want you to read some real books in some real libraries. You know, it's all virtual now. You can download almost anything. Um, study. Please don't get your research from Googling some stuff only from Wikipedia and from Instagram. Absolutely. You know, do some real research. Speaking of Instagram, you have an Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, website yes, that you want to give to my audience, uh, our audience. Yes, I am at Sonia McCoy Wilson on Instagram. Um, my LinkedIn is, is the same. If you just type in Sonia McCoy Wilson, there I am. And my Facebook page is McCoy Wilson Consulting. Absolutely. All right. Well, I appreciate you, Dr. Wilson. This has been great. It's been awesome. for listening to the Higher Ed Podcast. For more information on topics discussed, you can visit engine.systems. Join us next week and every week after for more innovative and actionable advice.